All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives on urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Ryan Vano. And I'm Princeton freshman Elliot Peck. And we're so excited to welcome Dr. Ethan Nadelman to the show. Dr. Nadelman is one of the foremost experts on drug policy in the U.S. and the world. Originally from New York City, he received his B.A., J.D., and Ph.D. from Harvard, then his master's degree in international relations from the London School of Economics. After teaching politics and public affairs at Princeton University from 1987 to 1994, he went on to found and direct the Lynn Smith Center and the Drug Policy Alliance, and through them has advocated for drug policy reform for almost 30 years. From pushing for marijuana legislation to fighting against the war on drugs and policies like civil asset forfeiture, his work has impacted countless people, both in the U.S. and around the world. Today, today he's also the co-host of the boundary-pushing podcast, Psychoactive. Dr. Nadelman, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be on. I, I always enjoy doing things with Princeton. I feel a very special connection having taught there for seven years and, uh, and that being the place when I first started to speak out publicly about drug policy, you know, Princeton was a fantastic base from which to be doing all of that. Yes, yeah, so that actually moves us really nicely into our first question. Um, so would you mind just sort of explaining how you first became involved in the world of drug policy and sort of along those lines, what made you decide to switch from the world of academia here at Princeton to taking a more hands-on role with your advocacy? Sure, Ryan. I mean, basically, you know, uh, during my college years and early graduate school years, my focus had been U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And that's where I published my first articles, my op-eds, and I taught my first courses. Um, but I sort of, for various reasons, tired of that area. And a friend of mine had pointed out to me that I was always interested in things like drugs and deviance and crime. You know, I was the one trying to get my friends high in college and graduate school and stuff like that. So I like I like using drugs. And I was fascinated by the deviant side of things. And so sort of not taking my academic, uh, you know, future very seriously. This was the early 80s. Um, and when the drug issue was very much a backwater, almost nobody was interested in it. I said, what the hell? I'm going to do my uh, do my research in that area. And I landed up writing a PhD dissertation that was actually not about drug policy reform. It was about the internationalization of the drug war and of criminal justice more broadly. In fact, I got a security clearance. I worked in the State Department's Narcotics Bureau. I uh, interviewed drug enforcement agents in all around Latin America and Europe. I wrote a book called Cops Across Borders. So I really got to know the, the sort of other side, the enforcement side of these things. And in the middle of my doing all this, the drug war all of a sudden took off like crazy, right in the mid late 80s. So as I'm getting my PhD at Harvard in 87, the drug war is becoming the number one issue in public opinion in the United States. I mean, there's a public opinion poll in the late 80s where 50% of Americans saying drugs is the number one threat challenging America. I mean, just to give you a sense of how crazy it was. And just a few years earlier when I started, almost nobody was interested. So I go to Princeton in 87. And interestingly enough, I was in a joint appointment of politics department at Woodrow Wilson School. And, and I remember the dean asked me to teach a seminar in drug policy, which is well, that's fantastic. So that gave me an opportunity to teach something and to invite a lot of the people I wanted to meet to come and speak at Princeton. Um, so I started, you know, teaching about it. And then I wrote a prominent article in Foreign Policy magazine uh, in the spring of 88, 
A month later, a mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke, gave a powerful speech at the Conference of Mayors. And the next thing I know, I'm sort of catapulted into the media. You know, I'm a 30-year-old assistant professor at Princeton. And also, I'm on the, all the major, you know, there was, I mean, they're not the same programs anymore, but Nightline and, you know, you know Larry King. And, I mean, you know, Phil Donahue show. These were the famous shows of, the, of that era. And in the media and the front pages of newspapers and magazines. And I kind of got the bug for this issue. And it was fascinating. It was also an interdisciplinary issue. So at one point, a few years later, I started an, inter, uh, an interdisciplinary group. Of, uh, we called it the Princeton Working Group on the Future of Drug Use and Alternatives to Drug Prohibition. And I invited uh, 18 academics from a dozen disciplines all around the country to come and think through what would be the optimal drug policy. But as I was engaged in this academic you know, world, and on the one hand, turning my dissertation into a book about how the DEA operates globally and how law enforcement works. And on the other hand, traveling around the country and the world, giving speeches and writing articles in popular media and some academics publications, you know, I was getting, there was a, the beginnings of an advocacy movement emerging, a drug policy reform advocacy movement emerging. And I became very involved in that even while I was still teaching at Princeton. And I started thinking, you know, I mean, it's fun studying this stuff, it's important. But what I also realized that was when you went and dug into the bowels of the library, a lot of really smart, good stuff had already been written about psychoactive drugs and drug policy and the drug war and drug prohibition, but it was having no impact on, on policy. And so I became, you know, like, this is nice. I like the academic life in the world, but I wanna have an impact. And I can only go so far as an academic. And I started thinking about how that could happen. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you build it, they will come. If you wish it, maybe it'll happen. I'm starting to think about creating my own center on this thing, maybe at Princeton, maybe at another university, a more urban university. And I get a call out of the blue in the summer of 92. I've been involved for four years in advocacy from a guy named George Soros who at that point was just known as a, you know, a prominent business investor who'd been supporting human rights efforts in the former Soviet Union, South Africa, China. Um, but he invited me to lunch in the city. And, you know, we spent two hours together just arguing and haggling and this and that, and, you know, me teaching about this and that. And at the end of that lunch, he looks at me and he says, well, look, I'm a very busy man, but I have substantial resources. So let's assume what I want to do is to empower you to accomplish our common objectives. So I kind of laughed, went home, sent a proposal. A year later, we shook hands. A year later, I left Princeton to set up the Institute, really with the mission of it being kind of an elite policy and advocacy institute for changing public opinion about how we think about psychoactive drugs, how we live with them, what our policies are, what our laws are. And then from that, that eventually began to evolve, not from just a, an elite kind of advocacy institute into an organization that would actually focus on actually changing laws, right, through ballot initiatives, through legislative efforts. Thank you. That was a very thorough rundown of your sort of origin story. Um, sort of, you know, you've, you've talked about how your sort of background was originally in, in foreign affairs. Um, how do you think that's informed maybe a global perspective on, on drug policy and maybe drug trade throughout the globe and the ways in which America has a role in shaping policy abroad as well? Well, I mean, it is true because, you know, I came to the drug issue from an international perspective. You know, my interest had been international relations and U.S. foreign policy. And so I was looking at the role of the drug war in Latin America. And at that point, 
you know, uh, I mean, Colombia was engulfed in a terrible situation with all sorts of really hot, I mean, you know, destabilization and the narcos being incredibly powerful. Bolivia was a major, uh, you know, source of coca. Peru was a practically a state of civil war with a kind of Maoist guerrilla group called the Sendero Luminoso. Uh, Mexico had been periodically would emerge to its kind of number one place in U.S. international drug policy. Um, and, and I was also somewhat aware, although it wasn't that developed at that time, that in Europe they were doing things differently. You know, the Dutch had decriminalized marijuana. There was a more public health response to the whole HIV-AIDS crisis, especially as it involved uh, illicit drug users. The notion of harm reduction, that, you know, accept the fact that drugs are here to stay and let's try to keep people safe until the point when they're ready to get the drug issue behind them. So I was aware that the international perspective was uh, very important on this thing. And um, part of that was that when I set up my institute in 94 with Charles was support and left Princeton, you know, one of the names, I named it the Lindesmith Center after a guy named Alfred Lindesmith, who had been the, um, really the principal academic in the mid part of the 20th century, challenging conventional thinking about drug policy and notions of addiction. But at one point I played around with the title of calling it the New Amsterdam Center which was both a play on my doing in New York, which had originally been called New Amsterdam, and a play on the fact that Amsterdam was a bit of a role model, both when it came to dealing with cannabis, but also more broadly when it came to dealing with the issues around injection drug use. Um, and so that international perspective that on the one hand, you know, the US is doing incredible harm around the world with our war on drugs, uh, and not just, you know, forcing country to try to forcing other countries to try to stop the flow of drugs to us, but even proselytizing our heavily, you know, moralistic, criminalized, criminal justice, punitive, security-based drug policies around the rest of the world, you know, bilaterally, multilaterally, and through, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in every way we could use our, our, our sorts of pressures. So, and, and in fact, you know, I've made it a, a you know, almost a routine that, as I would travel around the world, because I calculated recently, I probably spoken in 40 different states and 40 different countries or so about this issue, testifying before legislatures and parliaments and all this, that I oftentimes would start off by apologizing as an American for the incredible harm that my government was doing around the world when it came to this drug policy. And at the same time, I'd also be pointing out some things that would shake people up outside the country. You know, people would assume, oh, you know, U.S. drug war is not really about drugs. Nobody would be this ridiculous for drugs. It's really about advancing the ulterior uh, economic, political, security objectives of the U.S. government around the world. And I say, no, that's not what's going on. In fact, the U.S. promotion of the drug war globally is at odds with America's broader economic and security interests. I mean, we don't want, you know, drug narcos, you know, around the world, you know, blowing up pipelines and, you know, creating mass disorder. We don't have an interest in that. We have an interest in, you know, the rest of the world being more or less like Canada. And to the extent our drug war is, is, is undermining that, no. That what you need to understand about the U.S. drug war is that essentially it's an international projection of the domestic psychosis. We really are crazy about drugs. We were almost the only country in the Western world to decide that we would prohibit alcohol. And we did it through a constitutional amendment back in 19, you know, 19 or so, right? So we have something in our national historical psyche that makes us a bit crazy about drugs. So it was on the one hand, 
that element on the international side about countries in the developing world that were being seriously harmed by our approach, both you know, bilaterally, multilaterally, internationally. And it's the other hand saying, hey, there are other countries doing things other ways, more pragmatically, more science-based, more health-based in Europe, to some extent Australia, Canada, et cetera, that we could really learn from. So in that you mentioned harm reduction, that was an idea that really stood out to me. Can you explain harm reduction to any of our viewers that are unfamiliar with that concept? Sure. I mean, I, I basically will oftentimes lay out four different definitions of harm reduction. I mean, the first one is simply, it sort of gets going in the 80s of, of harm reduction is needle exchange, right? I mean, needle exchange emerges because there's a growing recognition that HIV and AIDS are spreading not just through homosexual sex in many parts of the world or you know, more broadly in Europe through heterosexual sexual behavior, but that basically injecting drug users are the ones um, you know, spreading the virus among themselves and sometimes to the people they come in contact with and not just through needle sharing, but also then, you know, once they're infected through sexual relations as well. And, and so it was the basic idea that, yes, of course, the best way to stop the spread of HIV by drug users is for them to stop using drugs. But the reality is, is that most people aren't ready to stop right now and they're gonna keep doing this thing. And that also most drug users don't wanna die and don't wanna get AIDS so that they will take some steps to kind of protect their own lives, their own well-being. And, you know, really, I mean, harm reduction emerges in the early 80s, I think in the Netherlands, where the people dealing with active drug users, you know, they have little drop-in centers and they just start putting like in the front door, a pail. Here's a pail to throw your dirty syringes. Here's a pail with clean syringes. So just swap them out, right? And it becomes, and, and even in 1985, Margaret Thatcher, who's you know, like Ronald Reagan, a right-wing British prime minister, totally anti-drug, but her government announces that we're supporting harm reduction and needle exchange because we need to, you know, essentially, you know, ultimately people can get better and recover from drug abuse, but there was no cure for AIDS back then. Right. And so that basic idea of harm reduction is needle exchange, which is to give people the means to better protect their health until they are able or willing to stop using drugs. That core idea. Now, there's a bigger idea, which is that it's not unique to drugs. I mean, harm reduction is bicycle helmets and motorcycle helmets and it's seat belts and it's, you know, it's, it's condoms to protect against sexual disease and things like that. It's any intervention or policy, whether on a personal level or societal level, that one engages in in order to reduce the risk of an otherwise dangerous, risky, or immoral activity. And then there's a third definition of harm reduction, which basically says harm reduction isn't just about drugs, harm reduction is about public policy. And what that amounts to is that when people ask me, what's your objective with drug policy? I mean, are you just trying to legalize all drugs? Are you trying, and I say, no, no, no. It's a balanced objective. The best drug policy is the one that most successfully reduces two things. That reduces the harms of drug misuse, you know, the death, disease, crime, suffering, and that reduces the harms of drug control policies, right? All the incarceration, violation of human rights, at great expenses, environmental damage, you know, you have about everything you can imagine, the racial injustice, et cetera. And that the best drug policy balances those, those things. So that's harm reduction as applies not just to drugs, but also policy. And then the fourth definition is really um, the uh, kind of moral ethical dimension of this. 
And on one level, it's about saying, when people are struggling with drugs, and here I'm including alcohol, cigarettes, I mean, you know, and illicit drugs and pharmaceutical drugs, you know, you know, the traditional American approach had been a very much 12-step abstinence-only approach. Like, we can't help you until you're willing to quit drugs. All your problems stem from your drug use. So until you quit, don't expect any help from us, you know, and don't show up. And, and, and if you start using drugs again, we're going to kick you out, whether it's a treatment program, a medical program, you name it. The harm reduction approach says, you know what, we're all human beings here. Um, you know, almost everybody who tries to quit drugs, you know, look at cigarettes. Most people quit five, 10, 20 times before they ultimately quit, right? So the objective here is really to um, meet you where you're at. You know, what are you trying to do? It's like asking a person who's struggling with drug addiction, what is it you want? You want to be able to get a legal job? You want to regain custody of your kids? You want to be able to spend more money on other things? Well, can you reduce your drug use from, you know, three times a day down to just in the evenings? Can you reduce your drug use from every day just to the weekends? Can you get in a pattern where you're never using drugs around your kids? Can you get in a pattern where you don't use drugs when you're, when you're going to work? Can you, can you switch from injecting drugs to taking it in a less dangerous form? Can you switch from less, more dangerous drugs to less dangerous drugs? So that's one element of harm reduction, the ethical dimension and pra practical dimension. And the final piece of this, you know, what I call sort of 4B of the definition of harm reduction is the core principle of drug policy reform, which is that I believe that nobody deserves to be punished for what we put in our bodies if we don't hurt anybody else, right? Nobody deserves to be punished or discriminated against or amongst based solely upon what we put in our bodies if we're not hurting anybody else or getting behind the wheel of a car, putting other people at great risk which means that, you know, whether or not I'm putting, you know, wine or marijuana or a cigarette or an e-cigarette or a heroin into, or a mushrooms in my body, if I'm not hurting anybody else, it's not the damn government's business and it's not even the employer's business as long as I'm fulfilling my obligations as a citizen and, and, to, and, and basically you know, in the workplace as well. That very core fundamental moral, it's also the one that says if, if God forbid you're a parent who's got two kids who are addicted to drugs, one's addicted to heroin, the other one's addicted to alcohol, that there is no legitimate basis in science, in medicine, in ethics, or even the Bible for distinguishing or treating the alcoholic kid any differently than the heroin addicted kid, right? No basis. In fact, if you ask the doctors, the doctors will say, quite frankly, alcohol is by and large the more dangerous drug than heroin if the heroin you have, if you have a clean supply of it, right? It's, it's you know, so that core ethical notion that human rights, civil liberties dimension is a kind of driving force for me and many other of the key leading advocates, even though it's not the first argument we make because most Americans don't embrace that principle. They will come around to drug policy reform for other reasons, but on some level, people do get that core principle. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate that sort of, you know, human first approach. Um, and, you know, as you say, other reasons, um, that people come around. Obviously, when you and the Drug Policy Alliance pushed for marijuana legislation, legalization in New York, um, you sort of also took the angle of racial justice and human rights. Um, I guess my next question would be, you, you've spoken about changing public opinion. Um, how do you get people to come around 
on all those things that you just discussed, making sure that we can sort of see drug users as, as people first and foremost and understanding their struggles and sort of in order to reach those policy goals, obviously you have to have public opinion. So what are your sort of strategies for, for trying to change that? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, so I could talk for hours just about that issue alone, because I mean, quite frankly, once I left the university and started the Advocacy Institute, more of my intellectual energy got focused on the issue of persuasion and communication and less on the specifics of what would be the optimal drug policy. I think I figured some element of that out already. But what I would say is, look, on one element on public education, you know, it's like in any other area. I mean, part of it's providing accurate information in forms that different audiences can understand. You know, sometimes one person needs to see the scientific articles and what the National Academy of Science and Institute of Medicine is saying, and somebody else needs a one-page bullet plate, you know, a, a list of bullet points, right? Some people need it in very simple language. We know that, for example, storytelling, you know, things that pull on the heartstrings are incredibly powerful. Right. If we were working, you know, basically in 1996, we 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 had done some research and we'd realized that there were two issues. Right. One uh, where the public no longer supported the drug war. And one was that a majority of the public was coming to believe that people should have access to marijuana um, with a doctor's recommendation for medical purposes and not be treated as criminals. And the second was that people, nonviolent people who got picked up in possession of drugs, even heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine, should not be sent to jail right away. They should be given multiple chances for drug treatment before you know, they're ultimately punished. So that was when people first started pulling away. But I'll give an example. When we needed to persuade, say, people in the legislature, um, you know, with medical marijuana, you know, you'd have somebody come in and they'd be in a wheelchair. They'd have, or they'd have AIDS wasting syndrome, multiple sclerosis, or it'd be somebody who'd just been through chemotherapy and was using marijuana to reduce the nausea involved in the chemotherapy. And you bring, or, or it might be somebody, a parent whose child had this epileptic condition, uh, Dravet syndrome, it's called, um, you know, where, where horrible spasms, but where medical marijuana can be helpful in reducing the spasms. And so you bring the human beings in. And I have to tell you, you know, people, even hard-ass, cold-hearted Republicans kind of would kind of ease up on this stuff. When we were started working, the, the first major racial justice issue in drug policy reform was around reforming the notorious Rockefeller drug laws in New York, these highly punitive laws that had made New York one of the leading drug war incarceration states in the country, New Jersey as well, by the way. And, you know, we would bring in some kid, some 10-year-old whose father had been sentenced to 20 years behind bars for a nonviolent drug offense involving a small amount or just being a courier in a larger deal. And you know, here's a kick on, why is my dad locked up for longer than rapists and murderers are, right? So it was the humanizing element. So you're using the information, you're trying to you know, get that out there. Then the next part of it is about communication, language. You know, I go and speak at different advocacy conferences, you know, it might be marijuana reform, might be a harm reduction conference, might be a drug policy thing, it might be to people, you know, left-wing Democrats, it might be right-wing libertarians, but what I would talk about is the importance of language, right, and, and being sensitive to that. You know, sometimes activists think that, you know, being an activist is just opening my mouth and telling people what I believe. And I say, no, that's not what being an activist is. 
Being an activist is thinking about how I say and frame what I'm saying in order to move my listeners, whether my listeners are my parents when I'm going back home from college to try to persuade them to think a new way, or whether it's somebody of a different political party or somebody, you name it. It's about thinking about language and the words that we use in order to move people. Now, it can be very specific sometimes. Like, you know, we did some polling early on and we found that if you're advocating for needle exchange, if you ask people, do you support needle exchange programs? Remember one poll we did maybe in Jersey back in the late 90s, early 2000s, 45% said yes. If you ask, do you support needle exchange programs to reduce the spread of HIV AIDS? 55% yet said yes, which is like, oh, remember to explain to people what the program is about. Don't just assume people know it. Or I remember after we won the first medical marijuana initiative in California in 96, and then my colleagues and I, we were doing focus groups around the country, and we did one at a conservative, I think it was with older white men in Greeley, Colorado, right? And I'm listening in, and I'm listening to their conversation, and all of a sudden it hit me, like, oh, I know how we ultimately pitch broader legalization of marijuana. The key words are tax control regulate and educate. That people who don't smoke weed like the idea of taxing other people's quote unquote thins, their marijuana use, right? That people think that legalization means free for all, whereas we know legalization actually means regulation. So people like regulate and control. And then everybody likes the idea of educate, right? That's everybody's fallback. How do you deal with drugs? Educate, educate, educate. You know, some of it's bullshit, some of it's real, but I mean, you know, so that language, right? Or I, there was another set of polls that I began to sort of suss out where if you, this was back in the 90s also, late 90s, if you ask people, do you support, um, uh, uh, how do you feel about legalizing marijuana? And 30% would say yes. And then we'd say, what about making marijuana legal? 35% said yes. It was like dropping that hard Z on legalize seemed to jump five points, right? And then we'd say, how about um, treating marijuana like alcohol? Well, tax it, control, regulate, and educate. 40% said yes. So the languaging made a difference in terms of our advocacy and such. So there was an element of achieving some discipline on this thing. And, and the last point I'd make about the communications thing here, although I could say 50 more things, is one of the things that's concerned me, in fact, it became a little bit more of a struggle in my last year's running DPA on like 2015, 16, 17, was as the countries become more polarized, that the language of the left and the right has become more and more different. You know, one of my frustrations in academia was that as academia specialist, academic disciplines and subdisciplines evolve, they more and more create their own language. So now tons of people can't even read or make sense of academic articles, not just in the sciences, but in things like, you know, politics and history. I mean, it's like they're just, it's like academics writing for a very small audience just to one another where they're essentially incomprehensible and where most academics don't even think about how to make what they're saying intelligible to other people. And most academics don't even write bother trying to write op-ed pieces and things like that. Well, now what we're seeing is where there's a kind of left way of speaking and a right way of speaking. And as soon as you start using all the left buzz words, which is part of kind of, I think also what's going on in most, you know, kind of elite campuses, it's almost like telegraphing the other side, we're not talking to you. You know, we're just talking among ourselves here. Um, and so I think that's a real, I think that's undermined some of the ability to, to advance um, discussion. Now, the thing I'll say for another question is, once you have a majority of public opinion on your side, then what do you do with that? Um, on the topic of like the changes of perception of drug policy, the communication of drug policy. So in 1995, you said you told the ACLU that 
on one hand, it looks bleak, but when you look to drug, drug reform policy today to seven years ago, you see progress. So reflecting on the past seven years since that interview, what does that progress look like wait, to you now? What, what year was that, Elliot? That was back in 1995. Yeah, so I mean, I would say, you know, I mean, by and large, I think we've made fairly steady progress, but there are moments. I mean, I remember, you know, back in the late 90s, um, as I was becoming, you know, much more involved in advocacy, we had this incredible streak where we won like 10 or 15 ballot initiatives where we legalized medical marijuana through the ballot initiative system, you know, in, in, in first in California in 96, and then in Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Nevada, and Maine in 98 to 2000, and then some states began to legalize. And then on the issue of treatment instead of incarceration, we passed a kind of breakthrough initiative in California in 2000, called Prop 36, which was probably the biggest sentencing reform since the repeal of alcohol prohibition. And then we also passed these two in, in, in Oregon and Utah, laws to reform the asset civil forfeiture law, the laws that basically allow cops and prosecutors to seize your property if they suspect you of being involved with drugs and they can seize it without having to show any proof. And then you have to prove yourself innocent to get your property back. And then the cops or prosecutors keep the assets for their own departments. I mean, so it's a really corrupt form of law enforcement that really distorts law enforcement priorities. And we won those initiatives, not just in Oregon, but in Utah. Right. I mean, they were undercut subsequently by the legislature, but we were on this real roll and needle exchange was spreading. Uh, you know, we'd done some stuff in the United Nations in 98 where, you know, there was a big United Nations General Assembly special session on drugs. And we kind of, you know, you know, basically hit, caught, did this huge global sign on letter that just kind of caught the whole global drug war establishment. It was like hitting them with a two by four from behind. I mean, they didn't even see it coming, you know. So and even, you know, Clinton was in power then and, you know, he had. I think tried to move in the right direction and then kind of bailed when all the other Democrats in Congress didn't want to move forward. But we had a sense of momentum. And then in 2000, you know, Bush and Cheney, I mean, they don't really win the election, but they land up in the White House. And then, you know, and the, the what Republicans are beginning to gain power in Congress again. And there at that point, I mean, you know, the war on drugs is a bipartisan thing. The Democrats aren't that much better than the Republicans, but the Republicans were really over the top, draconian and punitive and stupid. And the, the Democrats were kind of not over the top. They were kind of under the top, punitive, draconian and stupid by and large, but there was a qualitative difference there. And so, so and then 9-11 came, 2001. And the country switched into a mode of fear and, you know, fear and security and all this sort of stuff. And so the desire for that, the liberalizing energy that happened in the late 90s, all of a sudden, just got knocked back. I remember we were planning ballot initiatives, more treatment instead of incarceration initiatives, and we got our asses kicked, you know, in Ohio, I think, Arizona. I mean, it was just seeing that you think it's all going forward, and then pow backwards on this sort of stuff. So, so there have been moments, but if I look now, comparing when I got going in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, and you know, to today, I mean, back then, you know, support for legalizing marijuana was, you know, 25% of the country, 26% of the country, and marijuana wasn't legal anywhere for anything, except for a small number of people who had managed to, through the courts to get, you know, a canister of marijuana sent to them with a recommendation from a doctor. You know, look around today, and, you know, 90% of Americans say marijuana should be legal for medical purposes, 60, 65% say legal for all adults, even a majority of Republicans in many polls now favor legalizing marijuana. 
Uh, you know, it's now legal for medical purposes in more than two thirds of the state, legal for all adults in more than a third of the states, covering maybe 40% of the population. Um, I mean, that's a monumental transformation. And I think the only thing comparable to it is the evolution with gay rights and gay marriage. And, and it's to some extent, the whole, the whole gay rights movement and, 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 and gay marriage movement almost was a kind of role model or elder sibling for at least the marijuana reform part of our work. Then secondly, when it comes to the role of the drug war in mass incarceration, I mean, when I got going, you know, the prison population in the US was just rocking. Back in the 70s, America's our per capita incarceration rate back in the 70s, we were like at the global average. Fast forward to 2000, and you know, we've gone from 500,000 people behind bars in federal and state prisons and local jails to 2.2 million people behind bars, right? We've gone, we, you know, we, we hit the point we are, where we are 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated population. We have the highest rate of incarceration of any democracy in world history, right? Our rates of incarceration are exceeding, you know, I, I mean, I, I mean, with the black people, it, it's, it's, you know, astronomically greater. I mean, it makes apartheid South Africa, their incarceration rates look like nothing. Uh, the Soviet gulags of the 1930s and 40s, like, like nothing. I mean, we went into this incarceration rage. I mean, craziness that we just thought was normal and people buying into it, right? Well, you know, the passion for that has mostly burned out. And, you know, with the drug piece, even as the overall incarceration rate went up, was it three or fourfold from half a million to 2.2 million? The number of people locked up for violating a drug law went from 50,000 to 500,000, so a tenfold increase. And that doesn't count the people getting busted for you know, engaging in theft or shoplifting or prostitution or whatever because they needed to support their drug habit. And it doesn't count the people going to prison for being involved in drug-related violence and, and shooting, stuff like that, right? So now you see the drug war playing an ever smaller role in mass incarceration. You see public support for mass incarceration declining substantially. You see not just Democrats, but Republicans you know, throughout much of the country pushing for lower levels of incarceration. You see rates beginning to really come down. Um, you see sentences being shortened. You see mandatory minimum sentences being abolished or significantly reformed. So, I mean, every once in a while, you know, people say, oh wait, fentanyl. Fentanyl is a horribly deadly drug, which it is. Now we have to start reinstituting the old drug war way. Right. So you see that kind of stuff coming along. But by and large, you know, we've seen some real progress. The problem, of course, is like turning around the prison industrial complex is a little bit like turning around an ocean liner. Even when you point it in the right direction, it takes a long time for it actually to move in a new direction. And on the third major issue of drug policy reform, you know, marijuana, the first mass incarceration, the second on harm reduction. I mean, you know, I mean, needle exchange programs are still far too few. They're not really out there, um, but they're happening. You saw New York City just opened up a few months ago a safe injection site, what are now called um, overdose prevention centers um, uh, or, or, or opioid consumption or drug consumption rooms. And that's like a needle exchange with a back room and a nurse so that people who inject drugs illegally can at least do it without dying of an overdose. And those are going to be popping up around the country this year. And I think hopefully the Biden administration will give it more of a green light. So you see real progress here. And I say around the world, you know, Europe, you know, which had Western Europe, which had a pretty serious drug issue going on, including drug crime back in the 80s. Uh, you know, they basically made harm reduction their official national policy and they 
you know, they really have gotten a handle on things. So it's not all good. I mean, the drug war in Asia, there was movement on opening up harm reduction programs, but you know, you get nut cases like the Filipino President Duterte and others who are, you know, massacring people involved in drugs. Latin America had a little point 10 years ago where it looked like it was liberalizing and presidents were talking about, you know, legalization, things like that. But it's kind of partly gone backwards except around the marijuana issue. So I say overall, We've made a lot of progress. It hasn't been as momentous, apart from marijuana, as say has been the transformation with uh, gay rights and LGBT, you know, Q rights, you know, in the United States and some other countries. But it's clearly, and I think, of course, you look what's going on with psychedelics. I mean, that's it's like the psychedelic renaissance is happening now, both on the medical side and with the decriminalization side. That's truly remarkable. So I feel. Um, good about that. I feel generally, and if I asked myself 30 years ago, where did I think we would be? I, I, I yeah, it's hard to say. I, I think we're, we're kind of, I always thought about this as a multi-generational struggle and we're now in the middle of, you know, second generation. Um, I think we're, we're, we've done, we've done pretty damn well. And we, you know, we had to pull things back from a period of true insanity and madness and cruelty. Um, so to touch on your second point, sort of surrounding the criminal justice system and mass incarceration, um, as we move forward with, you know, legalizing certain drugs such as marijuana or psychedelics in certain regions, um, there's still, you know, a lot of Americans who have those previous drug convictions following them or on their record. Um, you know, there are expungement processes in some states, but they're not always automatic. I guess, what are your thoughts on expungement as a way to sort of rectify those issues and do you have any other policies that you think can sort of retroactively help those who were previously unjustly incarcerated due to drug-related crimes? Yeah, I mean, expungement in and, and various ways of clearing people's offenses, you know, of nonviolent drug offenses in the past is like a no-brainer. I mean, it should be an essential element of this. I think we just need to understand this in terms of the political evolution and chronologically. You know, when we were doing some of the earlier legalization initiatives on marijuana, um, you know, we could put in some measure of expungement, but, you know, we were trying to break through to be the first, you know, Colorado, Washington, to be the first states ever in 2012 to legalize marijuana, or Oregon, Alaska, 2014, or DC in 2014 with a quasi-legalization. And, and you have to pull your punches, I mean, on that sort of stuff. Now we're getting to the point where, you know, where you're going from, you know, all sorts of ways for past marijuana offenses to be expunged, um, to a point where it's happening automatically. Like we write into the law that this should happen automatically. It doesn't require any future oversight. So th there's an evolution in how this goes about happening at the state level and federal law will play some small role in this. I mean, you think about it, you know, the first marijuana legalization efforts, we still had to write in there, I think, that people who had been convicted of drug dealing could not apply for a marijuana license when it was legal. Now we're getting to the point where if you've been convicted of a drug offense, especially a marijuana offense, you're given preference in terms of getting a license in some states. And that's in part because public opinion has shifted. And it's also in part, I mean, if you look, for example, at the racial justice elements of this, the first four states where we legal, you know, legalize marijuana, Colorado, and I say, wait, it's me, it's marijuana policy projects, other activists, local activists, groups, I mean, this was a coalition. Um, you know, if you look at Colorado and Washington in 2012 and Alaska, Oregon in 2014, but those are all states with very small black populations, you know, under 5%, I think, in all of them, maybe less than that. Once marijuana legalization starts moving through, start, starts moving through the state legislative process, 
um, in whole or in part, like in New York or New Jersey, Illinois, what have you. Well, that's where once black and brown legislators come on board with legalization, which they had not really been five or 10 years ago, most of them, they start becoming powerful advocates um, for issues around equity both around expungement, but also around giving better opportunities, you know, for people who have been harmed by the drug war or communities that have been harmed by the drug war. So there's, there's that dynamic, broader public opinion, as well as the ways and places in which this stuff moves forward. I'll give you another example. When we had some momentum uh, some years ago, not on marijuana, but on getting rid of mandatory minimums um, for, for drug offenses, right? People, including Republicans, would go along and saying, okay, we agree. We have to get rid of some of these mandatory minimums. Um, and then we would say, but what about the people who got sentenced to these draconian sentences, you know, 20 years behind bars for low levels of drugs? I mean, shouldn't they benefit from the new law since if they were getting busted next year, they would not be, they'd be sentenced for a fraction amount of time? And Republicans, some Democrats would say, eh, we're not ready to go that far. Right. So we would basically grab the reform we could get, which was around lowering the sentences going forward. And then a few years later, you come back and say, you know what, there's a basic injustice here. There's still people running behind bars for long periods of time who, wouldn't even, who would be free if they had been sentenced under the current laws. So you have to sometimes take, you know, you know, the, the bite of the pie you can get and then go to the next stage. It's always a debate, by the way, in advocacy, right? Is that when you see an opportunity for a compromise, um, should you take it? And does taking the compromise, the legislative compromise, does it undermine the momentum for broader reform? And what I came to the conclusion after many years of advocacy is that if you're clear about what your ultimate vision is, and that if when you take the compromise, you're planting the seeds and setting the ground for further reforms and getting commitments for further reforms down the road, take it, do it. Help people today, reduce incarceration, improve decriminalize, improve freedom, blah, blah, blah. do whatever you can do and just have the plan ready. In New York State, when we were dealing with the draconian Rockefeller drug laws, we got a small reform in 04, we got a small reform in 05. Each time some of my allies would say, you're killing all the momentum for, for, for getting rid of the Rockefeller drug laws. But in fact, we were chipping away, getting closer to our ultimate target. And then in 08, when the politics shifted in the state government in terms of who was governor and the legislative you know, powers, you know, we knocked out the rest of the thing. So by and large, if you're clear about vision, if you do it strategically, you go for the compromise you can get. And so Ryan, with your initial question about you know, expungement, that's the process. Push it as far as you can in the initiative or the legislative reform, get what you can, get the commitments for further reform down the road, and then do that. And you know, that's gotta be a big part of it. And on the reparation piece, I mean, you know, I was very proud of the fact in the California initiative, one of the things we did is that we said that a certain percentage of all the tax revenue has to be dedicated specifically to help communities that have been harmed by the drug war, you know, and that can take all various forms from helping people learn how to, you know, operate in the marijuana industry and getting trained and licensed to other types of reforms to benefit people in those communities. And when, you know, my successors at the Drug Policy Alliance pushed for the New York reform, it's got a major element of that stuff that's really about trying to engage. I mean, reparations are a very loaded term, but I think in this area where you really have, you know, this is not about a system of slavery 150 years ago. 
This is about a war on drugs that incarcerated vast numbers of people. States like New York, where 95% of all the people getting locked up in the Rockefeller drug laws just a few decades ago were black and brown, even though they were, you know, you know, even though their rates of drug use and drug dealing were basically equal to or maybe a little bit greater than white people. So you had gross racial injustice in the war on drugs, harming individuals and communities. And I think in that case, dedicated reparations from the revenue or in these reform policies does in fact make a lot of sense. Yeah, and I also really like the sort of licensing, you know, giving that priority to those who were previously incarcerated. I think that's definitely a, a very smart policy decision. Um, yeah, I mean, but, the trick line is to make it really work, you know, because yeah. there's a whole long history of putting in minority set-asides and 10% of all the government's business area has to go for minority owners. And then all the ways in which that kind of can become bullshit, right? Where you basically have white people with money, they get one black guy to get up there and they give him a little cut and the whole thing doesn't really change anything. And so I think what I'm happy about is that um, more and more, I know this is true with Drug Policy Alliance, my successors there, and with others, I think there's more and more thinking about how do we make these reforms and these preferences real and fair. And I mean, there's a problem on some of the, 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 the race elements to this stuff, because there are, you know, I mean, when you're in the drug policy reform world, the drug war has been overwhelmingly and disproportionately targeted at people of color. But we're, we live in a country where the majority of people are white, which means the number of people who are white who've been reamed out and had horrible things happen in the drug war is also very, very substantial. You know, I remember I had this issue with some of my black colleagues and we'd be at one of our biennial conferences and, and one of my black colleagues would stand up and say, the war on drugs is nothing but a war on people on color. You know, and they get it, you know, ovation. And then I sort of pull them aside afterwards. I say, don't say it that way. Say the war on drugs is overwhelmingly or disproportionately war on people of color, go to that. But when you're talking to an audience and you've got dozens, if not hundreds of white people who have lost their families, their property, who are HIV positive, who have spent time behind bars, who have been humiliated and hurt by the drug war, and there are millions of white Americans who have also been harmed that way, don't say it's only about race. Race plays a huge element, especially in the United States and many other countries. But you know, this is also about class, and about poor people. And it's also about, you know, what I might call the phrase drugism. It's about the ways in which, you know, discrimination and stigmatization of people who use certain drugs is one of the last legitimate forms of prejudice in American society, where you could say anything about a quote unquote junkie or addict or whatever. And, you know, uh, whether you're using code language, or using those words. And so we have to be sensitive to that, this war on drugs. Um, is, is very substantially about race and racism, but it's also about many other things as well. And we have to be conscious of all of that. Yeah, so I guess one of those other elements, um, sort of the economic class angle, something I pretty distinctly remember learning about um, when you gave your talk here at Princeton last spring was the fact that the underground marijuana market sort of persisted in California, even after licensing and taxes, you know, there was this sort of strong gray market for, for the drug. Um, could you speak a little bit to, you know, how does that come about? What makes um, something like that persist? Sure. I mean, Ryan, one of the, there was a paper I started writing when I was still at Princeton, actually, you know, around 1992, 93, and I never completed it. But it was called Whatever Happened to the Black Market at Booze? 
And I started collecting all this information, evidence, because you know, after we repealed national alcohol prohibition in 1933, and already most states had repealed their state prohibitions by that point, but nonetheless, a substantial black market remained for quite a number of years. I mean, there were places like Mississippi that I think didn't legalize booze for another 20 years. And you have dry towns and counties all around America. But then you also had a dynamic kind of bootlegging industry, you know, in parts of the country, especially parts of the South, um, uh, you know, that just persisted. And you had other types of criminal involvement and things. So there was, in fact, a dynamic black market. You know, the you know the 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 the, the gangs, the mafias, you know, the Al Capones, those sorts of folks. You know, once they lost that business, but then what they did was they tried to strong on their way into legitimate alcohol distribution because they already had the trucks and the networks, right? I mean, so black markets just don't disappear when you you know suddenly legalize something. You know, there's a lot of momentum. The, the, people had developed a taste for corn whiskey during alcohol prohibition. And once alcohol prohibition was repealed, you know, the legal producers kept producing some corn whiskey because they had to appeal to the taste that had developed under prohibition, right? Before they went back to rye and, you know, things like this. So that happens. Now, it is same thing's happening with the legalization of marijuana around the United States. Um, and it's, it's even more challenging now because in 1933, when alcohol prohibition was repealed, that was a national repeal following on the states of already two thirds or three fourths of the states having repealed their own state prohibitions. But with marijuana prohibition, you know, when Colorado and Washington go first 10 years ago, you still got 48 states where it's illegal, which means there's still a vast overwhelming black market in marijuana. And even today, where a third of the states have legalized, a little more, most of the country is still illegal. And it's still illegal under federal law everywhere, even if the feds have decided not to enforce it with, a, with respect to intrastate commerce in marijuana in the states that have legalized. So it means that in all these states where you still have people producing marijuana illegally in the states where it's illegal, and in the states where it's legal, you still have people producing marijuana legally for the, in, the internal, intra, the state market, but still maybe producing some on the side to ship outside. And then you have others, you know, using the cover of legalization to grow marijuana and ship it to other states, all of which is illegal, right? So I think so long as marijuana remains essentially, you know, prohibited in much of the country, you're going to continue to see a very dynamic, robust um, uh, black market going on just because of the national market, right? So that'll eventually diminish over time. Um, but then the other element is, of course, when you legalize something, legalization means licensing, taxation, regulation, it means environmental regulations, it means sometimes labor regulations. Um, and at the same time, those things take costs. So if people can figure out how to sell marijuana without getting licensed, well, they're going to keep doing that. And then you have a place now where now the cops have to focus on busting the, even though marijuana is legal, they still got to focus on busting the, the, the unlicensed ones. But meanwhile, when we were writing the laws to legalize marijuana, we didn't want to have a whole new drug war against unlicensed things. So we didn't make the penalties that tough. So we're trying to balance lots of competing interests. And then you get finally to the unique problem of California, which has always been, you know, I think for, for a very long time, the number one producer of marijuana in the US. It has, you know, there are farmer families up in Humboldt, Mendocino, you know, multi-generation families involved in the marijuana, you know, business up there. And they're not, and many of them don't even know how to make a transition. They can't imagine, they're kind of off the grid. They don't imagine being licensed and all this sort of stuff. They don't want to do that sort of thing. 
So, and then the other thing about California is California was the first state to legalize medical marijuana in 1996. I was not involved in drafting that law, but I led the basically effort to raise the money and turn it into a professional campaign. It was about the last state to implement statewide regulation of medical marijuana. They only, Jerry Brown only did it in 2015, a year before we legalized more broadly, because to some extent he wanted to tie our hands and hobble us in the, in the broader legalization stuff. So you had a dynamic black, black illicit market industry and a gray market industry, you know, quasi-medical, quasi-illegal, that was just incredibly dynamic. And meanwhile, you know, we may have made a mistake in making the taxes too high in California. So California is a unique problem where a major part of the market, I think in other states, you know, they're already producing tax revenue that's coming, mounting into the billions now. I mean, the tax revenue for state governments, Maryland is becoming a, a significant contributor at this point, notwithstanding the ongoing illicit markets. California is the biggest challenge because that's the place probably where if you look at the overall marijuana market, the illegal part still takes up a substantial majority, I think, of what's going on there. That'll all work itself out over time, uh, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time. The idea of marijuana legalization, federal legalization, is something that fascinates me. Senator Chuck Schumer mentioned that he expects a bill for federal legalization of marijuana to get off the ground in the next few months. And now we've seen examples on a state level, but not a federal level. So I think there are any lessons or pitfalls that can be avoided by applying the policy yeah. struggle. Well, you, you know, I had Schumer on my podcast, actually. It was the one short podcast I did. You know, usually, I, usually I talk to people for, you know, an hour, hour and a half. In his case, I got him for like 15 minutes, you know, so it's a short, if people want to listen to my podcast, that's an unusual episode. I've known Schumer a tiny bit for a long time. He was, I mean, Schumer also was always a big drug war champion. I mean, among the Democrats, he wasn't quite as bad as Senator Feinstein and maybe not as bad as Biden. I mean, those were two of the real drug war champions among the Democrats and others were more progressive. Um, but on marijuana, he always had a bit of a soft spot. I remember talking to him many years ago and he wanted to be helpful on that front. And it was telling. I mean, I was stunned that he accepted to be on my podcast. It's like, here's the guy who's the majority leader of the U.S. Senate at this pivotal moment in history. And he's taking time to be on, you know, Ethan Adelman's psychoactive podcast. I mean, I thought that was, you know, um, you know, interesting, but he's clearly seen that it's in his political interest, both in terms of national politics, intra-democratic politics, Democrat versus Republican politics, and any potential challenges he may confront from the left within New York State when he runs for re-election, that all of this favors his being in favor of marijuana legalization. Um, and he's, you know, he's tied very closely to Cory Booker from New Jersey, who's been very out there and progressive for many years on both broader drug policy reform and on marijuana reform. And with Ron Wyden, the Oregon, you know, senator representing the state, which was, you know, basically second only to Colorado and Washington in terms of legalizing. So the thing I'm, I'm torn about, um, you know, is that, uh, uh, you know, there's whether or not He's committing, and my, my organization, Drug Policy Alliance, has been committed, obviously, to integrating social equity, racial equity provisions into both state laws and federal laws, and done it quite successfully in New York, New Jersey, some other states. At the federal level, it's much more challenging, right? I mean, we're talking now where, you know, only 40 or so of the Democrats out of 50 
are really strongly supportive of legalizing marijuana. I mean, Dick Durbin is kind of progressive, but he's always been a little backward on drugs and he's the number two guy. He's the deputy majority leader there. And you take over oh, the two women from New Hampshire and you take, um, you know, a range of other uh, senators as well. And there's, the, you know, the Feinstein's been a disaster. She's an old drug war hawk forever and ever for California. So it's not as if you even have 50 votes or barely over that much over 40. Some of them can be encouraged to do it. And then among the Republicans, you know, a number of them come from states that have legalized and there's some sympathy there, but they don't want to give the Democrats a victory. So, you know, I, I see Schumer, you know, every week he puts something out, whether it's a tweet or a short interview or something or a meeting saying, I want to do this. But I don't see how he gets there this year on a broader marijuana reform legalization thing that includes all the racial justice elements um, in it. Um, and then, you know, very good chance Republicans take over half or all of the US Congress this coming November. So then it's all gonna die anyway. So um, I hope he's thinking in terms of pushing for the best possible compromise. I'm hoping to interview a Republican Congresswoman, Nancy Mates, um, who's a South Carolina Congresswoman who's been, who's introduced her own marijuana legalization bill that doesn't have a lot of the kind of provisions I would normally like in a marijuana reform uh, bill. I, I think I'm gonna interview her maybe in a couple of weeks and we'll hopefully put it up fairly soon thereafter. And she's interesting too, because she's one of the Republicans taking on, you know, that neo-fascist uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever. So she's involved in some intra-party stuff too. But I, I'm gonna be doing a lot more work on this thing to figure out what's gonna make sense. Um, you know, I think they're gonna have to come up with some compromise that resolves, you know, the whole issue about folks in the marijuana industry not being able to use regular federally charted banks. And that means that these businesses remain very cash heavy, makes them more susceptible to being hit up by criminals and robbed and stuff like that. So there's huge support from law enforcement, Democrats, Republicans for dealing with that issue. And then the question is how they do it. I mean, part of this is, there's a part of me that's also a little wary of federal legalization. There's a lot of good things that come out, out of it, you know, to get the whole thing more orderly and to create international commerce. But the downside is once marijuana is fully legal, at that point, big alcohol, big tobacco, big pharma, big consumer goods, which have been staying away from this thing so far, you know, they're like, yo, let's go, let's run. I mean, they're already trying to do it through the Canadian businesses, which are, which are fully legal in Canada at the federal level. So, you know, there's a kind of, I've always been oriented towards a more kind of small is beautiful kind of model of how we should ultimately regulate this. You know, I've said many times, I don't favor the Marlboroization or Budweiserization of marijuana. Um, there's only so much you can do about that in a dynamic capitalist country like America. Um, you know, and people are already worried about big marijuana, but right now big marijuana is even it looks big compared to the old mom and pop shelf, but it's still pretty tiny compared to, you know, you know, big tobacco, big alcohol, big pharma. So I have my own ambivalences, as do many people in the industry, as many people in the in the broader world about about, about how this proceeds and what happens from it. And I'm a little wary about, you know, the FDA was really played a very bad role in this. I mean, you know, they went along with the drug war bullshit. They were not help, helpful at all in terms of medical marijuana. So the idea of the FDA, there are some aspects of this that definitely need more regulation. Like when it comes to vaping devices, we need more regulation of what people are vaping cannabis or for that matter, you know, nicotine products with. That is important because vaping devices can be dangerous if the wrong chemicals are in them or whatever, or the wrong materials. But apart from that, um, you know, it's uh, symbolically it's important. It has its good sides, but it's a very complicated uh, 
thing that could open open up some devilish forces that we may regret. Sure, yeah, thank you. That was a very comprehensive answer and we definitely appreciate that. Um, you mentioned sort of earlier on in this in this answer, um, you know, your podcast, Psychoactive. Um, so I guess thinking about what the medium of that podcast allows you to accomplish with your work, what sort of opportunities have you had that you hadn't been able to do before and, and sort of how is it, how has the experience been moving? You know, I'm going to tell you, right. I mean, when I first stepped out, you know, when I left EPA five years ago, the spring of 2017, and I, and I basically planned out my departure with my chair and a few other people over the last year or two. So I was doing a lot of thinking about how to do it right. I feel very good about how I did it, the timing I did it. And when people ask me what I want to do next, I'd say, I'll do, I'll do a podcast. Um, but then when I finally stepped down, I've been going really around the clock for 30 plus years. And I thought I just wanted to take life easy. I didn't want to talk about drugs for a while. I mean, I, it was like, you know, I could talk about drugs every day for hours a day. It was just nice to take a break and the right opportunity didn't emerge. But um, about a year and a half ago, I got an email from uh, a fellow I know a little bit named Darren Aronofsky, uh, who's a movie director. You know, he did the movie Requiem of a Dream. He did the movie uh, Black Swan. He did the movie The Wrestler. I mean, he's done some pretty, you know, no, he's done some pretty big movies. Um, and he'd been involved with my organization a little bit, you know, come to some events and this and that. And he uh, sent me an email saying, hey, Ethan, you want to do a podcast on, uh, on uh, psychedelics? I said, no, no, I want to do a podcast on all the drugs. He goes, let's do it. He goes, I have a movie production company for my movies and others, and I want to try to get in the podcast area. So he signed a deal with iHeart, which is like the biggest platform in the world or one of the top three. And I have an agreement with his company and I work with him and the iHeart folks. And so now we got a team. I mean, basically, you know, I mean, for me, part of it's fun because I'm working you know, what I, one of the things I miss about running an organization is missing with, you know, working with young people. And so now I got a team of people who are half my age and, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun doing these things. Um, and it, it's given me an opportunity to really re-engage on drug policy. I mean, I, I was always been intellectually fascinated. You know, for me, I'm fascinated about drugs because it's one of the most amazingly fascinating interdisciplinary areas out there. I mean, if you think about it in a university, you could have a full course about drugs in the majority of all the departments at Princeton. You could have one in economics, one in politics, one in sociology, one in anthropology, one in chemistry, one in biology. You could have one in literature, you could have one in music. I mean, you can't have it maybe in astronomy, right? Or physics, right? But I mean, this is an amazingly, remarkably interdisciplinary area. So I'm fascinated by the history of drugs and the culture of drugs and, and the nature of drug experience and how that relates. I'm, I'm interested in how drug wars impact on populations and what causes societies to go to drug wars. I'm looking I'm interested in looking at this comparatively and globally, but also looking very deeply at drug using communities, whether they're, you know, psychedelic using communities or really down and out homeless, you know, use drug users. I'm, I've just always been fascinated. I've been fascinated by alteration of consciousness. And I have my own, own personal. I've been, you know, I've been a regular cannabis consumer. I've never been a daily consumer, but I've been a regular cannabis since I was 18. And I'm going to be 65 in a few weeks. I mean, cannabis is, and, and psychedelics I've been fascinated by. And I'm always curious to try some of these other drugs just to see what they're like so you know for me the podcast gives me an opportunity to explore this stuff 
and to talk to people I've met over the years, as well as people I've never met. I mean, you know, it was neat having Schumer on, who I knew a tiny bit, or having the former president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, who won the Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize for, you know, trying to resolve the uh, the 40-year civil war there. Um, or I had the former head of National Institute on, I mean, no, the current head of National Institute on Drug Abuse, Nora Volkow. I was surprised she accepted because um, she used to run away from me, but now it's a signal of the times that she's willing to go on my podcast. But then, you know, I'm talking to, you know, somebody was sentenced to a life sentence in prison for making LSD, you know, William, you know, uh, Leonard Picard, or I talked, I just interviewed some, you know, a cutting edge ethnographer who spent years living with crack sellers in Harlem and Philadelphia, or with injecting drug users in San Francisco, um, you know, interviewing people about what's going on in Mexico, and then talk, doing about the drug Kratom, like what's Kratom about, um, or, or then like, Darren helped bring in um, two well-known podcasters, Dan Savage, the, the podcaster about sex and relationships, and uh, Tim Ferriss, a prominent business columnist who's been very interested in psychedelics issue. So he got them on this show. So, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm probably going to be interviewing soon a guy who just wrote a book about the spread of methamphetamine around the country. Uh, but then two weeks ago, I went up and visited the new safe injection site in East Harlem. I did my first interview like in the field. So for me, it's like. I'm getting to read books that I haven't read. I'm getting to reconnect with people, immerse. And I realized that, you know, I mean, you know, people used to say, Ethan, sometimes when you're out there, you know, you're often just preaching to the converted. And yes, there's an element when you're leading a movement where you are kind of mobilizing and giving inspirational speeches to get people psyched and going. But there's another part in which you're educating people. People are sufficiently interested to show up, whether it's at a drug policy reform gathering or by listening to my podcast, Psychoactive, and where I'm trying to want to engage them. I want them to get people thinking more deeply about this issue. And, you know, once in a while, I'm able to ask Schumer, the head of the National Institute of Abuse, a type of question that might make a little bit of news and get the podcast into the media. Um, but part of it's just about having, you know, really thoughtful, interesting conversations. Part of it's just about the fun of doing this. Part of it's the joy of getting, you know, messages from people, you know, I've never never heard of saying, wow, I saw your podcast and I live in the South and your podcast is a breath of fresh air and, you know, or I live in some foreign country. Um, you know, it's, uh, I just did one, the one that went up last week is a, is a guy, a bioethicist, um, Brian uh, Earp, who wrote a book called Love Drugs. You know, which is not just about MDMA, but about all the other ways in which we can or might use psychoactive drugs, either to advance and promote, help, or heal love relationships, or to do with things like, you know, reduce our feelings of jealousy or trauma from a bad relationship, or even potentially to suppress sexual desires that may not be permitted in our particular religious or other type of uh, community. So, you know, just fascinating issues. And so, uh, you know, the episode, the podcast has been renewed for a second season. So I'm looking forward to continuing to do this. And uh, hopefully the audience will expand. And we'll see how it goes. So on a more like a personal note, like how do you reflect on your journey from academia to policy activism to podcasting? Are there any lessons you've learned from fighting the, for progressive drug policy in so many different ways? Well, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I really, you know, feel blessed um, or lucky or whatever you want to use. You know, I, I really found my passion at a relatively young age. I mean, I was 25 when I started, you know, 
getting interested in this area. And I was lucky. I mean, I was lucky that, you know, the issue I had started to look on when it was a backwater all of a sudden gets thrust into national attention at just the moment, you know, when I'm finishing my dissertation and becoming a young professor at Princeton. I was lucky to get that phone call from George Soros. I was lucky to, you know, there were, there were lucky moments in there. And then there are elements in which you're just lucky and elements in which you make your own luck. I mean, in the sense that, not specifically, but I think that one of the lessons I learned was just following my passion. You know, I mean, I'm obviously busting my ass because I worked incredibly hard, um, but, but uh, you know, but, but, but following my passion. Um, you know, it's funny, I, I, at Princeton, I used to teach uh, the undergraduate law society class, right? And the vast, you know, it'd be 100, 150 students, whatever. And, and, and almost all the kids in there were like planning to go to law school. And so, you know, I, my very last lecture each year I taught that course was called Why Most of You Should Not Go to Law School, right? And, and, and I would do a lecture and I'd say, I'd say, I think I know why most of you are applying to law school. This may have changed a little bit in the last few decades, but I say, and, and I get people raise their hands and they say, oh, this reason that. I say, no, you know what it boils down to? The reason most people are applying to law school boils down to a four letter word F E A R, fear. Right, because what you know is you were smart enough to get into Princeton, which means you're gonna be smart enough to get into a good law school, which means you're smart enough to get, you know, a good law job. And I'll tell you, a bunch of you are gonna get hit in your 30s or whatever, you know, or 40s, and you're gonna go through a premature midlife crisis. Like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, I don't really like the law that much. I just went into it, you know, because it was like the thing to do. And you know, and I say, listen, if what you're really interested in is, you know, he also thinks it's a way to combine the life of the mind with making a good living. But I say, if you're really interested in making a lot of money, you know, fuck the law, go into business, go become an entrepreneur, lay it on the line, try to get rich and then do what you want to do there. If you're really interested in the life of the mind, go for that, get a PhD, become a writer, become an artist, go do for that. But don't, I say, there's a, I say, there's a small number of you for whom becoming a, a lawyer is going to be the, the right thing to do, where you really have the passion and you really find tremendous fulfillment in it. I said, most people who say they're going to law school, 50% will say, I want to do kind of something that's more social justice oriented. At least you hear this in the elite universities, right? You look 10 years later, almost none of them are doing social justice oriented law. They got to pay the bills or they get caught up in a more expensive lifestyle, right? So I think that notion of being willing to pursue your passion in a real way and in a smart way, you know, don't just go with the flow. You know, one of the things I always taught my daughter is like when you see everybody running one way, just stop for a moment, look around you, because maybe everybody should be running, you should be running with them because there's some bad stuff back there. But, you know, maybe it's just, this is just like a wave of something. And in fact, everybody's going the wrong direction here and you just need to stop, pause and look around. So I think the willingness to take chances, be creative, play the game. You know, I went out and I got, you know, I, I, I was eventual. I got myself both a PhD and a law degree. And the law degree was, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I mean, it was, don't let people drive you into certain lanes. And so I think that's a really pivotal piece. And then not to define yourself, you know, really at a young age, but really ever is like, oh, I don't do that. I don't do that. That's not what I do. Right. I mean, one thing I learned, I went into this issue because I was intellectually interested in this drug issue and I like teaching. 
right? Um, and I also knew there was a part of me that was passionate about justice, and that was very powerfully shaped by my, you know, the knowledge that my father had been born in Berlin in 1928 and had to flee in 1939 as a Jew with his family and grow up in Latin America before coming to the U.S. And, and the constant fact that my grandfather, you know, had been killed in Auschwitz. I mean, justice and this really loomed largely. So I knew there was a part of me that wanted to have an impact on the world. Um, but but I'll tell you, it, it, it's um, it, 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 it's that sense of you know I went to intellectual reasons and I started building an organization and I got to learn how to manage people and I got to learn how to do political stuff and I got to learn how to fundraise. I never took a day's lesson in managing or fundraising, but you know the need was there, and so it's the willingness to learn whatever you need to do in order to accomplish the thing you want to accomplish. Right. And I think, you know, the thing, if I have any real regrets, it's that, you know, um, I mean, there were some defeats. I had some political defeats that I regret. But beyond that, it's like, where did I fail to do something I really should have done because I lacked the discipline or I was afraid of the potential fallout or consequences? So I think that's the really important thing. I think also, you know, being grounded. I mean, you know, uh, you know. I mean, I know what I, you know, I know what I believe. I keep testing my beliefs, but I, you know, and, and I also believe, you know, one of my frustrations now is is when the, when the country and parts of the world are so polarized and such extremism and stupidity. And I see, you know, kind of a, so much of it reminds me of what I know from history about Europe in the 1920s and 30s. And so I'm full of, of fear and, 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 you know, anxieties about the state of the world. And for me, it's this is a lot of this has been about trying to cross, break through those barriers. You know, I mean, the drug issue used to be what they called the third rail of American politics. You know, where nobody can talk about it. And then you look back in what was it 2018? Trump is president. Almost nothing of a bipartisan nature has gone through Congress, but two big bills do go through bipartisan support and are, are signed by Trump. And one is to deal with the opioid issue, and the second is to reduce the mandatory minimum drug sentences. And so here we've gone from being the third rail of American politics to being something where you could actually have a consensus in a highly polarized country. And to me, that was another indication um, of, of, of really great success as well. You've given us so much sage advice in that last question, but um, as we start wrapping up here, the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, and we like to close by asking our listeners, what's the punchline? Um, if you think our listeners could walk away with one piece of advice or one, one piece of knowledge, what do you think that would be? I, I really think it's, you know, find your passion and pursue it. And ideally, that passion is about something that adds humanity and beauty and decency in the world, not a passion for something else. Well, with that, we conclude today's episode. Um, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Nettleman. Uh, you know, we, we really learned a lot today and this is definitely a very enlightening, enlightening conversation. Um, Feel free to plug Psychoactive, let our listeners know okay. where they can find it. Yeah, sure. I mean, Psychoactive, it's on all the major platforms, you know, Apple and Spotify and Audible and uh, uh, iHeart, et cetera. So just plug in Psychoactive Podcast and you'll be able to find it. So please do sign up and, uh, you know, or download or whatever you need to do to, you know, show that there are more people listening to this thing. And as I said, Ryan and Elliot, you know, it's always, it always especially meaningful for me to do something with Princeton just because of the important role that Princeton played in my life in the late 80s and early 90s when I was really launching you know, what I ended up doing with my life. So I'm very grateful for those years at Princeton and the opportunities that afforded me. 
Well, thank you again. And for our listeners, make sure to tune in next time on Policy Punchline. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.